I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 11, and we'll be uh, continuing our study in the activity of Jesus Christ from heaven, working through the Holy Spirit to build His church on earth. So this morning, we'll be looking at uh, Acts chapter 11, and I'll start reading in verse 19, and I'll read down through verse 30 as we see another very important stage in the fulfillment and development of the Great Commission uh, being fulfilled uh, through the life of the ministry of God's people. So I'll begin reading in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. And as I am reading the inspired Word of God, please give very careful attention to the reading of His Holy Word. Verse 19. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And now at that time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders." And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, what you've noticed is that uh, suddenly the Gospel is going to spread up to Antioch. And uh, in fitting with Luke's customs, he is kind of bringing Antioch into our purview. And uh, this is somewhat of a preview of coming attractions that will take place in Antioch as it begins to replace Jerusalem as the leading Christian center of the first century, particularly after Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. You find that Antioch will now become the great uh, launching pad for foreign and worldwide missions. So Antioch now is being introduced to us, and then uh, Luke will pick up the story here later on in chapter uh, 13. But what we see uh, beginning in verse uh, 19 is that because of Stephen's death back in chapter 8, 
that many of the Christians in Jerusalem and Judea began to flee because of the intensity of the persecution. We find that they were scattered and uh, they began to make their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So Phoenicia is a region, kind of modern day Lebanon. They began to go up into that area. Cyprus is the island. And then Antioch is up north. So these Jewish believers began to expand and go into these areas. But we notice at the end of verse 19 that they're preaching to Jews only. And that's really the gospel precedence to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So they begin by by preaching to the Jews. And then we read in verse 20, but some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, came to Antioch and they began speaking to the Greeks preaching the Lord Jesus. So now we find other believers come from the island of Cyprus and Cyrene, which is in northern Africa, and they are drawn to Antioch. Only they, instead of just preaching to the Jews, now begin to preach to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. Now, this word for Greek in verse 20 could refer to God-fearing Gentiles like Cornelius was back in chapter 10, or to those who are 100% pagan. But these Jewish evangelists, these believers, began to go to Antioch, not only preaching to the Jews, but also to the Greeks. Now, Antioch, uh, again, is a pagan Roman city. It's uh, At this point in time, it's the third most important city in the Roman Empire behind Rome, which is in Italy, and Alexandria, which is in northern Egypt, northern Africa. And then you have Antioch. So it's an extremely important city in the Roman Empire. It had a population of about half a million, about 500,000. It became the very uh, capital of the Roman province of Syria. It was headquarters to Rome's Syrian legion. So it was a leading military uh, city of that, of that whole area of Syria. It was also a leading commercial center. Uh, it was on the major trade route located about 300 miles north of Jerusalem and 15 miles inland from the Mediterranean port city of Seleucia. It's on the Orontes River which is very important. So they had uh, access to the Mediterranean Sea by ships because of the river. And there's a lot of wealth that flowed through Antioch. Because of that, Antioch became a very uh, rich melting pot for many different ethnic groups that were drawn there because of the business that was going on. So in Antioch, you had Romans, you had Greeks, you had Persians, you had Indians from India, you had Chinese, you had Arabs, and you had a large Jewish population. It was said that about 15% of the population of Antioch was of Jews. So many of them from the persecution had, had fled up there because everyone who, who came to Antioch was given equal citizenship there. So they were very open to different ethnic groups, including Jews coming up in there. Uh, So it was a real melting pot with all these different kinds of people. So it was a refuge city for 
uh, the Jews, but it was a multicultural, international city. Uh, but it was also uh, renowned for its moral corruption. There was a lot of temple prostitution nearby. Uh, there were temples outside of Antioch, several miles outside, that worshipped Artemis and Apollo. And the sexual indulgences were so prominent that uh, this whole area almost became known as an outdoor brothel, kind of a red light district. So it was very corrupt. Um, in fact, a Roman writer later on, when Rome begins to become corrupted in a very similar way, will blame Antioch. He'll say that the sewage of the Orontes, the river that flowed through Antioch, was discharging its sewage in Tiber, which is the river that flows through Rome. So they actually blamed their pollution from Antioch. So it had a, it had a reputation uh, for all these different things. So Antioch as a city uh, was, was a cosmet- cosmopolitan city, a commercial city, and a corrupt city. And yet it was in that context that God established a mighty beachhead for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes, one of the commentators, uh, accurately summed up the, uh, this when he said that God's light can shine in the darkest pit and God's flowers can blossom in the most putrid bog. And so here we find in this really, this pit of sin, a very wealthy city, a lot of commerce, the capital of the province of Syria. And in the midst of all of this, God establishes uh, this very important church in the midst of all this. See, you don't need a Christian culture for the gospel to prosper. We want a Christian culture. We prefer a Christian culture. But the power of the gospel can, can produce a harvest anywhere under any kind of government. And that's due to the glory and the power of God. What's interesting is that the people that brought the gospel to Antioch, they're not even mentioned. We don't know their names. They're just uh, common, ordinary believers that have a love for Christ and a love for other people. So God can use anybody, any way, anywhere to accomplish His good purpose in bringing the gospel to those who need to hear it. And that means that God can use you and God can use me. These people weren't even named, but God used them mightily to bring the gospel to Antioch. So we read in verse 20 and 21 that many Greeks believed. And notice in verse 21, by the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. I love this expression, the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of God or the hand of the Lord can refer to many different things, but one of them is to His sovereign power. It was the hand of the Lord that created the universe. For example, in Isaiah 48 verse 13, God says, Surely My hand founded the earth and My right hand spread out the heavens. 
In Isaiah 40, verse 12, then we're not surprised when, when God says that He has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand. That is the oceans in the very hollow of His hand. And marked off the heavens by the span of His hand. We know that by the, the hand of the Lord, His sovereign power, He brought the plagues on Egypt and devastated the land. By the hand of the Lord, He dried up the Jordan River so the Israelites could cross over to conquer the land of Canaan. By the hand of the Lord, He turned the heart of King Artaxerxes to let Ezra return back to Israel. Because Proverbs 21 tells us that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord and He turns it whichever way He wishes. So the hand of God can refer to His sovereign, almighty power. But in this context, the hand of the Lord refers to His sovereign grace in saving sinners. So that when God extends His hand, Sinners get saved. And when God withholds His hands, then the Word of the Gospel is sown like seed, but it falls on deaf ears. It falls on roadside soil. It falls on thorny ground, rocky ground, but it does not bear fruit. But when the hand of the Lord is with them, then suddenly hearts are changed and sinners are converted to the glory and praise of God Almighty. That's why salvation... Is totally of the Lord. From the beginning to the end, salvation is the work of our triune God. From eternal predestination to eternal glorification, it is the hand of Almighty God that saves sinners. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit work together in carrying out the eternal covenant of redemption forged in the mind of God in eternity past to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, and that is to accomplish eternal redemption. So that God chose us in eternity past. God sent His Son from heaven to earth to be our Redeemer and bear our sins on the cross. God sent the Holy Spirit to open our hearts of His chosen ones, so that we could repent and believe in Him. And God keeps us safe until we arrive home with Him in heaven. So what comfort should we as believers in Jesus Christ have knowing that our salvation is due to the fact that God's hand was reached out upon you? That His hand is there and He will not pull it back. But it is there to save us and to keep us saved to the very end. I love Isaiah 41 verse 10. The comfort that comes to God's people. When God says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Because God's people are in His hand. And He upholds us so that we do not fall or falter. In Isaiah 49.16, the Lord says, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. He has tattooed an indelible ink that nothing can remove the names of His chosen ones in His hand. We are secure in Him. 
And then I love John 10, 28, when Jesus says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Why is that? For no one will snatch them out of My hand. Beloved, you and I are in the hand of Christ. An omnipotent, sovereign hand that not only has come down to save us, but it will preserve us and keep us safe until the end. Glory be to God that we are in the hand of God. And God's hand has been stretched out at Antioch. And the hand of the Lord was with those common everyday believers that had the boldness of the Spirit of God to share Christ with a lost person. And they were believing and turning to Christ because God's hand was at work in their ministry, in their witness to bring sinners to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for that marvelous hand of the Lord. You know what's also interesting here? is that Luke, a Gentile, may have been one of these converts that was saved right at this point in time. One of the oldest prologues to the Gospel of Luke says that Luke was a Syrian. He was a Greek. A Gentile. He was a native of Antioch. And the church fathers Jerome and Eusebius also affirm that Luke came from Antioch. This may have been where the author of the Gospel of Luke and the author of the, of the book of Acts first heard the Gospel and came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. This Gentile, who never became a Jew, wrote more of the New Testament than any other author in the New, in the New Testament. More than the Apostle Paul. This Gentile, converted by the hand of God, was used so mightily uh, in the spread of the Gospel and in the record of these tremendous truths. Well, that's the work of evangelism that we see going on uh, in this passage. And then we see the work of encouragement in verses 22 through 24. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And when they arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them with all resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So in verse 22, we read of the leaders at the church of Jerusalem where there were probably still some of the apostles were there. Some of them had already left to go off and do other ministry. But the church at Jerusalem was known kind of as the mother church at this point in time. And they had sent a delegation to Samaria when they heard the Samaritans had come to faith to check it out, to make sure that everything was, was uh, gospel true, if you will. And now they hear about Antioch. And they hear about Jews coming to faith. Well, they expected that. But Greeks coming to faith, again, they didn't necessarily expect that. And so they need to investigate. And to make sure that the gospel there was sound. That was on a firm foundation of Jesus Christ. So the apostles that were there and the church leaders felt the responsibility to protect the gospel. 
They were not control freaks. They weren't, they weren't a hovering parent coming from the mothering church, the mother church. But nevertheless, they had the responsibility to be uh, guardians of the gospel. So they need to send someone to go up and check it out. Make sure that everything is, is legit and biblical. So they send Barnabas in verse uh, 22. Now Barnabas, we've already run into Barnabas. Um, Back uh, earlier in uh, the book of Acts in chapter 4, we know that he was from uh, Cyprus where some of these Jews had gone over to Antioch to evangelize. Uh, Barnabas was from the island of Cyprus too, so he may have known some of these guys. He was a, he was a, a Levite. He was a Hellenistic Jew, meaning that he had kind of grown up in the Greek culture, though he was Jewish. His name was also called Joseph. But the apostles called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. We know that Barnabas was a very generous man in, in Acts 4. He was the one that sold his land and brought it to the, the feet of the apostles to help the, the poor people that needed financial aid. He was a very generous man. And we're told also that he was a good man. In verse 24, full of the Spirit, full of faith, a very godly man. So in going to Antioch, they choose Barnabas. And he goes there more than just being an investigative journalist. He's an apostolic delegate. He's an ambassador. And he goes there to check things out. But he's a very gifted man. He's a son of encouragement. He has a reputation for being one who is given to encourage other people. And that's what this young church at Antioch needed. It needed his gifts. It needed his caring heart, his loving spirit, his congenial spirit. This is not the time to send a Luther. You know, he's like a, a bull in a china closet. But one with sensibilities, one who can encourage them. Because now you've got Greeks and Jews and they're going to try to fellowship together and you're just already talking about a powder keg that can explode with all the cultural differences and all the different uh, aspects of those two cultures. You needed a gifted man who is a peacemaker. This is not the time to send a hair-splitting Jewish legalist. One who would suffocate the young zeal and growth of these, these Greek believers by trying to press them into a Jewish straitjacket and keep all the ceremonial laws. That's not the time for this. You need someone who would come who came from a Hellenistic background himself like, like Barnabas did. Someone who could understand the culture. One who could be a peacemaker. And, and that's why they were so wise in choosing Barnabas to go and minister and to, to, and to check it out. You know, there's always situations in our lives when we need someone who's a, who's a peacemaker. Not someone that's going to storm in there and stir up all the opposition but someone who knows how to speak a kind word of grace and forgiveness and encouragement. So what kind of a personality do you have? When you come home and the kids are acting like they're Jews and Greeks and they're all opposition and arguing about everything, are you someone that comes in and just kind of blows up? Or you come in as a peacemaker and help them to work through it in a biblical and a godly way? Are you a peacemaker or a peace breaker when you enter into the home? 
Well, Barnabas certainly was a peacemaker. And he was a blessed man. And in verse 23, when he arrives there, it says that he witnessed the grace of God and he rejoiced. I mean, he was excited to see what the hand of God was doing. Uh, he rejoiced because he loved the Lord and he loved God's people and he, and he loved to see sinners get saved and come into the family of God. And he encouraged them all. Look at verse 23. He encouraged them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Now your translation may uh, word that a little bit differently. There's a question whether the reference here to this resolute heart or steadfast purpose refers to Barnabas or to, the, to him or to the people he's exhorting. And it probably refers to both. He was one with a resolute heart, but his message to them all, Greek believers and Jewish believers, look, remain true to the Lord. And do that with a, with a resolute heart. Barnabas had the gift of exhortation, the gift of encouragement. So he came to these young believers, probably with a, you know, still, still with, with a lot of the, 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 the baggage of their background still in their lives. And he just said, look, with resolute heart, I exhort you, I encourage you to purpose within your heart a committed resolve with resolute heart to remain true to Christ. Follow Christ. And so in verse 23, he encouraged them all with a resolute heart to remain faithful to the Lord. What a tremendous message. His focus was to them, you young believer, you follow Christ. And you do it with a committed heart. You resolve in your soul that you're going you're to follow the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what happens to you. Wherever He leads you, you follow Christ. Whether it's up on the mountaintop, a blessing, you follow Him. Whether it's down in the valley of despair and persecution, you follow Him. Whether it's in good times or trying times, you follow Christ because He's the Good Shepherd. And He will lead you into His green pastures and quiet waters. And yea, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you will fear no evil, for Thou art with you. His rod and His staff, they protect you. I think this is a good word for us today. I hope someday when I grow up to be like Barnabas. To have a word of encouragement for God's people. Because this is what you and I need to hear today with a resolute resolve and commitment in your heart, follow Christ. Wherever He leads you, you follow Christ. Because Barnabas knew that what a young believer needs to hear and what those who have walked with the Lord for many, many years need to hear is the most important thing to them should be their relationship with Jesus Christ. To seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you. But with with a full resolve and commitment in your heart, follow Jesus Christ. That was His Word. 
and because of his blessed ministry to them in verse 24 we're told that considerable numbers were brought to the Lord Jesus Christ they began to to hear Barnabas's words and they began to with resolute heart follow Christ and they began to share the gospel with others and more would come in to the church so that through this great ministry of Barnabas many many were brought to the Lord at the end of verse 24 Well, Barnabas was also a wise man. And he knew that this young church that was growing pretty rapidly with a mixture of Jewish believers and Greek believers, they needed somehow to be forged together into the one body of Christ. What they needed was a man who was able to teach. They needed someone who knew the Word of God and could could explain it and teach them and train them. And so Barnabas realizing his own limitations, which is a mark of wisdom, knew that he needed help. He needed reinforcements. He needed some big guns to come in. And the one that he thought of was, where is Saul? I remember Saul. I mean, he's, he's already helped Saul get reacquainted uh, in the church of Jerusalem before, but we need to find Saul. I need to get Saul. So Barnabas uh, leaves at this point and he goes up around the corner to Tarsus where Saul has been for a period of, you remember, about eight to ten years. Um, He was converted at Damascus. He had the Damascus Road experience. He was there for about three years, spent some of that time in Arabia, then he came down to Jerusalem. And then because of conflicts that arose, they sent him up to uh, Caesarea and ultimately went back to his hometown of Tarsus. That's where Saul was from. That's his hometown. So he's been there for eight to ten years. We don't know anything about those eight to ten years. He was out of the limelight. But this was not a wasted time in the providence of God. It was a time for Saul to grow in his understanding of the grace of God and the gospel. It was a time for him to immerse himself in the Word of God. There's a tremendous academic library there at Tarsus. He no doubt spent time studying uh, some of the writings of even the pagan authors so he could better understand how to preach the gospel to them. Some of those writers he'll actually quote in some of his letters. But it was not a wasted time for Saul, though we don't know anything really of what went on there. But I would suspect that maybe at that time God helped to sand away some of the rough edges of Paul's personality. Remember right after he was converted, he was probably entered into his cage stage. As we usually talk about people in the Reformed faith, you know, when they come to know these truths, they just kind of go bonkers. They go bananas. They're so excited about them. Kind of need to cage them up till they get over it for a period of time. So we know that even while he was up in Damascus, eventually because of his boldness in preaching the gospel there, that, that uh, the Jews and the ethnarch of the city combined together said, we've got to get rid of this guy. We need to kill him. So they had to lower him down in a basket to escape. He comes down to Jerusalem. He begins to, to preach the gospel. He begins to debate with the Jews. And suddenly another death threat came up against Saul. So they had to send him up to Caesarea. That eventually sent him back up to Tarsus. You know, maybe he just needed to, to grow in a little more of grace and gentleness in his, in his life. 
We don't know why. But uh, he's up there and he's spending eight to ten years preaching, studying, and, and the Spirit of God is preparing him and seasoning him and sanctifying him for his future ministry. He already understands he's going to have a ministry to the Gentiles. That was a part of his conversion experience, you remember? And uh, so God in all this time is just preparing him. And we've talked about it before, but a lot of times you and I may feel like we're in a place where you know, not much is happening to me. You know, Lord, I don't feel like I'm really useful in Your kingdom. I don't know really what I'm doing. I'm not uh, bearing a lot of fruit right now. Lord, what am I doing? And what, what are You doing in my life? Sometimes God just has us in a place where maybe it's quiet. Maybe there's not much going on. But it can be a great time of preparation if we stay in the Word of God, if we continue to seek the Lord, if we continue to pray, fellowship with God's people, because God may be preparing you even now for a much greater ministry to come. That was true of Saul. So Barnabas goes up, he grabs Tarsus, uh, in Tarsus, he finds Saul, and he brings him back. Look at verse 25. When it says that he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. This word look is only used three times by Luke. And the only other two places it occurs is when Luke writes in his gospel when Jesus is 12 years old or so and he goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast and he gets lost. Well, according to Joseph and Mary, he gets lost. So on the way back, they can't find him in the caravan. They start looking for him. They're frantic. Where, where did Jesus go? They go all the way back to Jerusalem and they're looking all over the place because they've lost their son. Of course, he was right there in the temple. Uh, he was in his father's house. But the word look suggests kind of a difficult, frantic search that takes time. And that word suggests to us that when Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul, he didn't initially find him. And why not? It suggests that it's looking with difficulty. You've got to turn over all the, the rocks and knock on the doors. Well, he's not here. Well, where is he? He's not over there. And he had, they had, to, he had to look for Saul until he, till he finally found him. What may have been the case is when he goes back home to Tarsus, where his, his family was, his parents would have, would have been there, and he begins to share the gospel with them, they may have immediately rejected him because of his faith. He may have been rejected by his family. The synagogue eventually probably would have rejected him. He would have been disinherited by his parents. And it may be this that Paul has in mind later when he writes Philippians chapter 3 when he says that he has suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that he may gain Christ. That's why uh, Barnabas didn't find him in his home. That's why he probably didn't find him maybe in his uh, home synagogue. He had to really look hard to find Saul because he had already been run out. He had already been disinherited. He had already been uh, rejected by his family. So it took some, some diligent searching. Maybe that's implied by this word in verse 25. 
Well, he brings Saul back in verse 26. They <clears throat> Together they go back to Antioch. They spend an entire year there. They met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So now Barnabas comes back to Antioch and he begins to... to uh, to use Saul and his gifts of teaching to help build up this young church that's there in Antioch. Again, Barnabas knew that uh, what this young church needed was teaching and the task was more than he could handle and he knew Paul, Saul's mastery of the Old Testament as a rabbi, as a, someone who was like a scribe. He also knew that he was bold in proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. That he was a, a skilled debater, not only at Damascus, but in Jerusalem. And there's no better teacher to equip the church than Saul of Tarsus. And what that tells us is that new Christians, new converts need discipleship and they need teaching. It's interesting, uh, this uh, week we had the opportunity to go to hear the ministry of Elam. And Elam is a, uh, is a ministry that's ministering to the church in Iran. And you probably have read stuff about what God is doing in Iran, but there are, there are thousands, tens of thousands, they claim hundreds of thousands of Iranians, Persians, who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in Iran. The church is, is growing incredibly. And what the people that presented the ministry said, our greatest need is discipleship. Our greatest need is teaching and training. So part of what they were doing was raising funds for getting Bibles, but also uh, sending in people who could teach and train these young converts. It's exactly what's going on in Antioch. They need to be trained. They need to be taught the Word of God. Because teaching is a vital part of making disciples. It's a vital part of the Great Commission. Remember what Jesus said? That we're to make disciples by going and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. Teaching is an essential part of discipleship. So that even after Pentecost, the early church in Acts chapter 2, what were they doing? Well, they were in, the, in Jerusalem, but they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and breaking of bread and to prayer. The untaught church will be easily led astray into false doctrine and worldly living. And I love, and this is really why why Christian education is so vital and important for our age. And sadly, like in America, with the government controlling secular education, you're going to lose all Christian influence for the most part uh, within, within government-run schools. And uh, education is so important. And that's why we do it at home or in whatever education system that you have access to that's biblically based. But, but education in the Word of God is vital. A.A. A. Hodge, who was uh, one of the professors of systematic theology at Princeton uh, Seminary, uh, wrote a book called Evangelical Theology in 1886. Well, that's a long time ago. It's the 19th century. 
And this is what he said about the importance of Christian education. He said, I am as sure as I am of the fact of Christ's reign that a comprehensive and centralized system of national education separated from religion as it is now commonly proposed in America will prove the most appalling enginery or machinery for the propagation of anti-Christian and atheistic unbelief and of anti-social nihilistic ethics, nihilism. Take out all religion and life is meaningless. And that's exactly what they believe life is. Meaningless because there is no religion of value according to them. And the anti-social nihilistic ethics on an individual social and political basis which this sin-rent world has ever seen. So what is he saying? It's exactly what's come to pass in America. And that's why, sadly, today, uh, within our own culture, you have within the education system uh, the dominance of evolution and socialism, particularly at the university level, and sexual perversions of every kind and gender confusions, all of which violate God's creation norms because a secular government has taken control of education. Now, in Antioch, you have a secular environment. You have equally heinous doctrines and ideas being taught. So the church must be taught the truth. The church must equip their children and and everybody to understand and embrace the Christian worldview of Scripture so that they can stand strong against the attacks and the invasion of all these other isms and and, uh, philosophies and viewpoints that are out there. So Barnabas knew the importance of teaching within such a morally corrupt, cosmopolitan, commercial center as Antioch. The church needed to be grounded in truth. So he brings in Saul. And Saul is the man with the intellect, the education, the zeal, the passion to do it, which turned that little church into a mission-sending, worldwide foreign mission church. It's, it's incredible what, what the Spirit of God does there. In bringing Saul to Antioch, you also learn something about Barnabas. Because Barnabas is kind of like John the Baptist in his relationship with Christ. Remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus. He said of himself, I must what? Decrease and he must increase. Jesus must increase. When Barnabas brought Saul to Antioch, I think he knew that Saul was a grade or two above him in his giftedness, in his knowledge of the Word of God. And I think ultimately for Barnabas, he realizes that he's bringing in someone who can do what he can't do for the church. And Barnabas will gradually step into the shadows after the first missionary journey that he and Paul will go on together. But Barnabas here was the apostolic delegate from Jerusalem. He was the man with the credentials. He was the man that knew all the apostles well. But he knew his own limitations. And he knew the giftedness of Saul. That he was a teacher. And that's what this young church needed. And Barnabas was more concerned for the reputation and the glory of Christ in the church than for his own personal reputation and glory within the church. And he was willing to eventually allow Paul to take the front seat and for him to take the back seat. It's interesting, we'll read now where it's Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. Until we get to chapter 13, 
And then it's Saul and Barnabas. Saul and Barnabas. Because now he understands and and actually will take a back row seat to this uh, incredibly gifted apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also read in verse 26 that uh, this is where they're first called Christians there. Uh, Think how many times uh, the name Christian occurs in the New Testament. You may be surprised it's only found three times. It's found here. It's found once in uh, Acts 26. And Peter uses it once in 1 Peter chapter 4. A Christian, the name Christian really means someone who's a follower of Jesus Christ. Those who were Christ-centered at Antioch and who exalted Christ and talked about Christ and preached Christ were eventually given the name of Christian. Those who follow Christ. And this is far more than what we kind of in America refer to as cultural Christians where people think, well, I'm born in America, I must be a Christian. No. These are genuinely people who follow Christ and they show it in their life. Now, how did this name come to be? Well, the Jews didn't invent it because to call the believers Christians, Christ is the, is the Greek name for Messiah in Hebrew, and they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah, so they wouldn't be following, they wouldn't be calling the followers of Jesus followers of the Messiah, followers of Christ, because they didn't believe that. So the name Christian didn't come from the Jews. It wouldn't have come from the early church either, because they already had a whole handful of names that they used to refer to one another as. For example, they referred to themselves and were called primarily disciples or saints, or believers, or brothers and sisters, or witnesses, or followers of the way. So they had plenty of names to call each other, so they wouldn't have invented a new name. So how did it come about? Well, a lot of uh, commentators suggest that it came uh, from the Greeks, from the Gentile world, and it may very well have been a name of derision. Because they would have looked at these Christians, these believers, and all they did were they talked about Christ. They, they, they shared Christ. They preached Christ. They, they talked about Christ among themselves. And from an outside pagan perspective, they're saying, well, who is Christ? They claim it's a Jewish Messiah that rose from the dead, you know, this, which is a myth in their mindset. So who are these crazy people who are always talking about Jesus Christ? Well, they're followers of Christ that Jewish Messiah that they claim rose from the dead. And, and so they probably came up with that name as a name of derision. Um, so it was not a name initially as a name of endearment or respect because they would have heard that this Jewish Messiah was shamefully crucified on a Roman cross. So these are, these are crazy people following that guy. You know, that was crucified and is claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. They're followers of Christ. They're Christ. So it probably had that kind of an overtone. But see, these people, they were, they were um, proud to claim that name. Eventually it stuck with them. They later on began to actually using it for themselves because Christ did mean everything to them. They did talk about Christ a lot. They did seek Christ's kingdom first. 
They had been transformed by His grace and Christ had forgiven them of their sins. Christ was their hope of glory, their confident hope of heaven. It was Christ first. And so they wore the name Christian as a badge of honor. Can I say that to you this morning? Never be ashamed of the name Christian. You know, in our own culture, it's, it's becoming a name of derision. Has been for some time. You're a Christian. It's kind of identified of, in our politically correct culture as, as, a, as a worn out religion. Worn out and outdated values and morals which belong to the prudish and antiquated Victorian age of yesteryear. Oh, you're a Christian? You mean you're going to condemn me for my morals? Now, that's all they think of. And sadly, of course, they couldn't be more wrong. Because as long as sin is in the world, the message of Christ is vital and the only solution to man's deepest problem, which is his sin. Never be ashamed to refer to yourself as a follower of Christ, as a Christian. Never be embarrassed when someone talks down or negatively about Christianity. Yeah, they may misunderstand it and it's Maybe it's part of our responsibility to help them to understand what that name really means and the blessing that comes to those who who know Christ. But the hearts of many, though they're closed and shut against the Gospel and they may mock Christianity, the hand of God is still being stretched out and some of those mockers may one day embrace the name of Christ for themselves as well. Only true Christians will name the name of Christ when there's a price to pay for claiming it. And may that be true of us. So they first began to be called Christians in Antioch. And then very quickly to wrap up, verse 27, prophets come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Agabus, by the Spirit of God, verse 28, begins to say there's a great famine that's going to occur over the world. It's going to take place in the reign of Claudius, who is emperor of the Roman Empire. And in the proportion of any that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And they sent it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Notice not the apostles, because most of the apostles had probably already left Jerusalem but it's now the elders, plural, who are the leaders of the church in Jerusalem now. So Agabus talks about this coming famine. He received a direct revelation from God about it. And we find that the believers there who had the ability were more than willing to give financially, to send a financial gift down to Jerusalem to help the poor believers, Jewish believers, in Jerusalem. What's so important about this is you have Greek believers sending money to Jewish believers. And you begin to see already that even though they've never met one another, they sense they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're there to help one another and minister to one another. And they express their solidarity in Christ. This is what Paul will later say so beautifully in Romans chapter 15, when he says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia, this referring to other offerings, 
have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. That is, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. See, the Gentile believers are sharing in the spiritual blessings of the new covenant. Israel's blessings. The Spirit of God. The blessings of the new covenant. The new heart. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit within them. All their sins being forgiven. They have inherited fully the spiritual blessings of Israel in the new covenant. So they're obligated to help financially and minister back to them with material things. That is financial aid and help when when it's needed. Now, the, the church should seek to match up those with the ability to give with those who need to receive. And uh, this principle of as according to your ability uh, to, uh, as unto the need is something that Marx got totally wrong. He kind of got the general idea, but for him, it's... Uh, from those who are able to give to those who are needy, but the government's going to control it all and the government's going to force you to do that. That's not the biblical uh, method. It's voluntary. It's freely given, not as Marx tried to, to develop it. But that's the idea. Those who are able to give help those who need to receive. And that's what they were doing in such a powerful way. So Antioch not only becomes a birthplace for foreign missions, but for foreign mercy giving mercy, financial aid to believers in other countries. And all of that is beginning to take root at Antioch. Well, in conclusion, what we see is the beginning of a shift in the focus from Jerusalem to Antioch that will slowly develop more later. But the leadership and direction of Antioch has a vision and they have the energy for foreign missions and also for foreign mercy. And after Jerusalem will fall in 70 A.D., Uh, Antioch will become the leading church, the first international church that will become a springboard for, again, both foreign missions and foreign mercy. And by their devotion to Christ, people began to call them Christians because their relationship with Christ was the most important thing in their life. And let that characterize us as well this morning. Let us wear that name Christian. Uh, Thankful to God for His hand that has been stretched out to save us and draw us to Christ. And let us seek God's grace to live up to the name Christian as a follower of Christ who is known to be a follower of Christ. Not in name only, but in life and action and word and deed. You know, a story is told of Alexander the Great who once learned that in his army there was a young soldier who also had the name of Alexander. Only on the battlefield he did not live up to the name Alexander. In fact, he was shown to be a coward on the battlefield. Alexander the Great heard about this young man and called him in. And they brought this young man to him. Now, Alexander had con- the Great had conquered the world at the age of 23. He called in this young soldier and he said to him, Is your name Alexander? And were you named for me? 
And the trembling young soldier said, Yes, sir, my name is Alexander, and I was named for you. And the general then turned to him and said, Then you go forth and you either be brave or you change your name. Because he didn't want his name associated with someone that didn't live up to his character. You know what? That applies beautifully for the name Christian. Don't just take the name Christian. Let it reflect your character, your lifestyle, your boldness for Christ, your devotion to live for Him. Be a Christian, not just in name only, but in heart, in life, and in speech. We who have that blessed name, let us act like one. Let us live like one or change your name and no longer take up the dear name of Christian. But let us seek God's grace to help us in our stumbling, faltering ways that we might live up to the high calling of being a Christian. Well, may God bless us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, just to see the hand of God move in such a powerful way in Antioch. And Lord, we thank You that uh, this, wasn't, this church was not birthed by great apostles like Peter or John, but by just common everyday Christians who, who had a love for Christ, who wanted to bring the Gospel to those who were lost. And Lord, we struggle in all of these ways. Lord, we, You know our hearts. You know that we're not where we should be and we need Your grace more. But Father, help us to live our life more outwardly and vocally and openly as a follower of Christ. And use us, Lord, to build Your kingdom that Your name might be lifted high and reign from shore to shore and in every nation of this world. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.